Church family, if you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, our text for today is verses 3 through 6, and actually, um, this is going to be part 1 of this message. Um, But today, I want to read verses 3 through 14, and you'll understand why we're going to read that whole section as we go. Um, But we need to get the context here, and so let's read together. um, Well, not out loud this time. I'll read out loud. You follow along um, in your copy, uh, verses 3 through 14 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Church family, have you ever stood on the edge of an incredible scene and tried to take it all in, but felt a little overwhelmed by the sheer awesomeness of what lay before you. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe you are standing on the sand, on the edge of the ocean, watching a a beautiful sunrise or perhaps sunset. You just stand there in awe, as far as you can see, just beauty and wonder. Maybe you're on the top of a mountain in the fall, overlooking a a valley with mountain ranges extending off into the distance, and you're just just wowed by the beauty that is there. Maybe, Maybe you visited one of those places that's just known for that kind of awesomeness. Maybe the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, uh, the Black Hills, maybe somewhere in Yellowstone uh, or, or some other place with one of those just spectacular views. One where you take a picture and then you show people and, and before you even show it to them, you say, well, I'll show you the picture, but it doesn't do it. What? Justice. You, you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you just stopped and gazed up into the sky on a really dark but crystal clear night. And, you know, when you, you, the, the more you look, it's like, Stars just appear and it's like, oh, I see all the stars. And then you look a little longer and you see some more. And then you look a little longer and you see some more. And then you see some more. And it's just absolutely incredible. You kind of feel a little small and a little overwhelmed by what you are seeing. Church, that's how I feel. But to a far greater degree, as we approach this opening sentence of the main body of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And by sentence, I don't just mean verse 3 or verse 3 and 4 or verse 
3 through 6, I actually mean verse 3 through 14. In the Greek, original language, that is one long sentence. In fact, Ephesians contains several really long sentences. If you or I wrote sentences like this in grammar class, we would be scolded. We would not receive a good grade. The teacher would say, that's a run-on sentence. We don't write in run-on sentences. In fact, um, this is the second longest sentence in the New Testament. And if you're wondering, it's 202 words long in the Greek. Don't start counting your English translations. But in the Greek, it's 202 words long. I know some of you are wondering. I won't even say this. but I know some of you are like, well, you got to tell us what the first number one longest sentence is. It's in the book of Colossians and it's 218 words long. Okay, but this one is second longest uh, sentence in the New Testament. Um, But here's the thing. God is not bound by rules of English, English grammar. And so if he wants to write in really long sentences, and guess what? He gets to write in really long sentences. And maybe you felt that as I read verses 3 through 14. It's kind of hard to figure out where to stop and take a breath. And in fact, one, one uh, commentator said it's almost like Paul, he, he says this in one breath. It's like he doesn't even stop and pause as he says verses 3 through 14, this one long sentence. And it is a sentence of, I'm just going to say it this way, complete awesomeness. I believe it's one of the grandest passages in all of the Bible. In this long sentence, Paul provides us with a concise and yet incredibly thorough summary of God's plan of salvation. Look at verse 1. He calls it the blessing that we have in Christ. In verse 10, he calls it a plan for the fullness of time. And then in verse 13, he calls it the gospel of salvation. And as he describes salvation in this passage, he starts at the beginning and perhaps more in the beginning than me, than we may would start in describing the gospel. He then moves to the middle and then he assures us of the end. We see in this long sentence, the three persons of the triune God. When I say the triune God, I'm referring to God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit all completely one, yet distinct in their persons, and, and even we'll see in their, we could say, workings in, in God's plan of salvation, and yet one true God worthy of praise, all participating uniquely, and yet as one working to accomplish God's plan of salvation. Church, in a way, we are standing not on the edge of the Grand Canyon or on the edge of, of, of Niagara Falls or on the, on the edge of the solar system even. We are standing really on the edge of the very mind of God. That's a little overwhelming. That makes me even a little nervous to think that, that I could stand up and, and, and speak accurately about these things. And yet we have God's Word. And so we want to look in God's Word and we want to say what God's Word has said. That's our desire. And if we do that, we will be on the right track to, in a good way, being overwhelmed by the awesomeness of our great God and his great plan of salvation. Now, we're going to spend several weeks here in verses 3 through 14. I told you last week, maybe even the week before, that we're going to move rather slowly through this opening section of uh, of of Ephesians. There's just a lot here and we don't want to race past it. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to we're going to do do our best to do this past passage justice. Uh, but I believe that even though we're going to spend several weeks here in these verses, I believe we're still going to leave this passage not only in awe of God and a little overwhelmed at how awesome God is, 
but we'll leave knowing that there's still more to see and explore and enjoy in this passage. And also knowing that there is so much that we will never be able to fully comprehend when it comes to God's plan of salvation. And so let's dive in. Um, I want to give a brief overview of the layout of verses 3 through 14, and then we'll uh, kind of transition into um, examining verses 3 through 6. And, uh, and, and let me give you just a heads up on kind of the, the flow of today's uh, message. Really, the first half is going to be this kind of overview and then looking at verse 3. And then in the last half, I'm going to give you kind of a main idea statement that I normally give you at the beginning, I'm going to give you that about middle ways through, and then we're just going to kind of we're just going to do point one. Okay, this is part one of this uh, sermon, really, and so we're just going to do point one today. Um, and uh, so I'll just say that so you kind of know the the lay of the land um, as we walk through um, this uh, this uh, message and this passage. Let's start with our quick flyover first. Um, as we look at these verses as a whole, um, we see that the entire passage is what we call a doxology. A doxology, you, you, you know that word. It comes from the Greek word um, that means um, glory. And, and so a doxology is when we declare the glory of God. And that's what this passage is doing. It is a doxology. It is a call to praise God. And the fact that this doxology comes even before Paul's thanksgiving for the Ephesian believers, which starts in verse 15, kind of sets it apart as unique from um, from most of the rest of his letters. Normally, Paul begins his the body of his letter with a thanksgiving. He he gives thank gives thanks for the believers that he's writing to. He does this in various ways, but he, he normally starts out by giving thanks. Um, but in this passage, excuse me, in this letter, he begins with a praise to God, a doxology. And then in verse 15, he moves into his a little bit more typical um, thanksgiving. Now, um, I want you to notice that this passage, you say, how do we know that this is a doxology? How do we know that this is a, a call to praise God? I want you to notice um, how the passage begins. It begins by blessing God. It's another way to say praising God. And then three times in this passage, Paul refers to the praise of God. Notice this with me. Verse one, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. It's, it's, we're offering a blessing to God. Um, it's not that we have the ability as humans to, to give God a blessing, maybe something that he doesn't already have. It's just a way of saying that we're praising God. And then notice the three time, the repetition of um, this call to praise. Verse six says to the praise of his glorious grace. Or another way to translate that is, is to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then look at verse 14, how the passage ends. To the praise of his glory. We notice by the repetition here that this is a doxology. It is a call to praise God. The point of this passage ultimately is to lead us to praise God. Let me pause there and say, here's what that means. The point of this passage is not to answer all of the questions we may have about God's plan of salvation. The point of this passage um, maybe isn't to, um, to, to say everything that even the rest of the Bible says about um, God's plan of salvation, to even communicate everything we can know about God's plan of salvation. Ultimately, the goal of this passage is to lead us to praise God for his plan of salvation. It's not just to fill our minds with knowledge. We do want to learn, and there's a lot to learn from this passage. But if it doesn't lead us to praise God, then we have really missed the point of this passage. It is a doxology. Second, we see that 
This, again, as I said earlier, this passage highlights the Trinity, the triune God, the three persons of God. We see the Trinity very much at work in this passage. Again, notice this with me. Look at verse four. It is God the Father who chooses us for salvation. See the work of God the Father. Verse seven. It is God the Son who pays the redemption price through his blood on the cross. And then if you'll skip down to verse 13, we see that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of our salvation. And so and in a way, we kind of see them at work throughout. It doesn't break down exactly evenly into those three parts, but it kind of does. So you see the father at work. We see the son at work and we see the Holy Spirit at work in our salvation. And the the way this passage highlights the separate and yet unified work of the Trinity in our salvation, I believe definitely adds to the grandeur of this long sentence of praise that we find in Ephesians. Third, even though we see the different parts of the Trinity highlighted in different places in the passage, we need to know that Jesus takes center stage in the work of salvation. He takes center stage as the one in whom all of salvation becomes a reality for us. We can't we're not going to. Go through and I'm not going to say every single one of them, but just kind of scan your eyes through there. And I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago um, this phrase that gets repeated about 38 times in uh, the letter of Ephesians. And a lot of those 38 times are right here in this opening passage. The phrase in Christ or in him or through Jesus Christ. Variations of that phrase are repeated over and over and over. Almost every single verse in chapter one, verses three through 14 mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mention him as taking a back seat in God's plan of salvation, but the way in which we see Christ um, at work and God the Father at work through the Son helps us know that Jesus takes center stage in God's plan of salvation. And then finally, in our kind of overview of these verses, verses 3 through 14, notice that Paul is writing this not just to one person, but to the saints. We spent some time thinking about that and learning about that last week in verses 1 and 2. He is writing this to the saints. He is writing this to the church of God, to the believers in Christ. This passage gives us a a foretaste, if you will, of what is coming in the rest of the letter concerning the doctrine of the church. Brothers and sisters, through his plan of salvation, God is making for himself a people, a people chosen, adopted, redeemed, possessing an inheritance and sealed for the acquisition of that inheritance forever. All of that's coming that I just said from chapter three, uh, one, verses three through 14. We see that God is making a people who are blessed by God. And in response They are blessing and praising the God of their salvation. Perhaps we could summarize what we learn in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 this way. The work of salvation is accomplished by God. The center of salvation is the Son of God. The product of salvation is a people belonging to God. And the ultimate goal of salvation is the glory of God. That's what we see in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. Now... That's a little overview, a little flyover of verses 3 through 14. And hopefully you're probably seeing why it's going to take a little bit uh, to walk through all of these verses. Um, they're just so incredible. 
And we're going to take in all that we can along the way. Let's zoom in now on verses 3 through 6. And, and as I said, we're really kind of only going to look primarily at verse 3 and really the first half of verse 4 um, in the remainder of our time today. Verse 3 is really the main idea for this whole passage. And then verses 4 through 14 provide reasons why Paul can make the incredible claim that he makes in verse 3. So he makes an incredible claim in verse 3, and then verses 4 through 14, he, he gives the reasons why or how he can make that claim. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We can spend the rest of our time today just on this one verse. There's so much here. Paul begins by offering a blessing to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells us why he and the Ephesians and we should offer a blessing to God, why we should praise God. And, and, and the reason is God has blessed us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. God has Blessed us. Well, what does he bless us with? What's the text say? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me point out a couple of things here. First, I want you to notice the scope of our blessing. We believers in Jesus, we, 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 we Christians are blessed with not one, not two, not with a sampling, not with a handful, not with a good bit, as we might would say, but with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh. All of them. All of them. I mean, I mean, imagine. I mean, imagine. You're a kid or my age and somebody, your mama or your grandma or somebody walks in with a brand new batch of cookies. Y'all know I love cookies. Uh, they're, they're so good. I pretty much like any kind of cookie. And walk in. And, and what, what, what do you want that baker to say? You can have them all. But, but what does that baker, what does mama always say? You can have one. I mean, that's the worst thing ever. You can have one, right? You just have one. And you got to sit there and look at all of them, but you can only have one. What, what's this say when it comes to spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God doesn't say you can have one. Moms, maybe... You said take a cue here, right, from the Lord. Um, you, 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 he doesn't say you can have one, you can have two, you can have some. He says every spiritual blessing is yours. God has not held back any spiritual blessing. All spiritual blessings are ours. Now, to my wife, the mother of our children, um, I don't want her to take a cue from God here because that means there won't be any left over for, for me. And so um, to my kids, you can only have one. All right. The rest are mine. So that's the scope of our blessing. Now notice the nature of our blessing, the nature of our blessing. It is a spiritual blessing. The blessings of salvation are not material things. They are far better than the material things of this world, which cannot, never can, never have, never will be able to satisfy our souls. We have peace with God. That's one of the spiritual blessings. And we talked about that last week. We have entrance into God's throne room. 
We, we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who continually makes intercession for us before the Father. We have a place being prepared for us there in the presence of God. We have the promise of Christ's return to come and rescue us out of this sin-cursed world so that we can live with Him forever. We have spiritual blessings. And yet, how often do our hearts long for the things of this world when we have been given a blessing of far greater value? Church, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Nothing can steal those things away from us. In fact, we don't have to leave them here when we die, but they are ours forever and ever and ever. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then third, notice the location of our blessings. It is in the heavenly places. Or another way to say that is in the heavenlies. The heavenly places, the heavenlies, the heavenly realm, the unseen realm. This, this phrase occurs five times in the letter to the Ephesians. It is the unseen realm where, in, according to chapter 1 verse 20, where Christ is seated. According to chapter 2, verse 6, where believers are seated with Christ. According to chapter 3, verse 10, where unseen spiritual beings are learning of the magnificent wisdom of God as they see His plan worked out in the church. And according to chapter 6, verse 12, it is where unseen forces of evil, including the devil, are scheming and wrestling against the people of God. The heavenlies and the heavenly places is actually a major theme in the letter to the Ephesians. And that is where our spiritual blessings are located. And thus it is no wonder that the Apostle Paul told the Colossians, he said, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Church, how foolish we are when we are consumed with things below How foolish we are when we search for evidence of God's love towards us in in money or or possessions or physical health or earthly accolades. We have been blessed with eternal righteousness and eternal life and eternal protection from the evil one. And yet we grumble to God because we can't afford more stuff or nicer stuff or because we can't find a cure because we think we deserve more recognition or, or more award. Church, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our praise of God is to be dependent upon that. Our praise of God is in no way to be dependent upon our earthly circumstances. So let me ask you, Christian, are you looking at your earthly circumstances today and finding it hard to praise God? I'm not denying that your earthly circumstances might be hard. But that doesn't mean we should find it hard to praise God because we don't base our praise of God and whether or not we do that or the extent to which we do that upon our earthly circumstances. Are you looking at your earthly circumstances today and finding it hard to praise God? If so, then this passage is calling us to look to the heavenly places and see all that is yours in Christ Jesus and let it Stimulate your heart to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and to let it drive away all of that ungodly discontentment that so often hinders our joy in Christ. And then fourth, in verse 3, notice the means of our blessing. Notice the means of our blessing. How is it that we who are dead in sin and by nature children of God's wrath 
How is it that we could gain such a blessing? And I'm not just making up that description of us. That's Paul's description of us in Ephesians chapter two. Dead in our sin and children of God's wrath. How is it that we could gain such a blessing? Very simply put, it is in Christ. Notice that it is in Christ that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, why Jesus? Why is it in Christ? It is Christ Jesus who left the glories of heaven and came to the sinful earth on a rescue mission for sinners. It is Christ Jesus who laid down his life on the cross, enduring the Father's wrath toward our sin and paying the price to redeem us from our sin. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered the grave by rising up from the grave. He laid down his life and then he took it back up in glorious fashion. It is Christ Jesus who ascended then back into heaven and who is who is seated at the right hand of God and who is by his own words, by his own promise, preparing a place for all who belong to him, for us to dwell with him forever and ever and ever. It is in Christ, because only Christ has done that work of salvation. If you're here today and you are lost in your sin and are wondering, how could I gain such a wonderful blessing as we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3? Friend, it is in Christ and it is in Jesus Christ alone. If you want this blessing, then you must have Christ. You must want want Christ. As we've said, He is the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation. As all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, so do all the blessings of salvation flow from union with Christ. If you are in Christ, then listen, these blessings are yours. If you are not in Christ, these blessings are not yours. You say, well, how can I come to be in Christ? Well, friend, the same way that the Ephesian Christians did. Would you skip your eyes down to chapter 1, verse 13 for a moment? How did they come to gain this inheritance of these eternal blessings? It was because they heard the word of truth. And they believed in Jesus as they heard the gospel of salvation. So if that's you today, if you are not in Christ and therefore don't have these spiritual blessings, will you believe in Jesus? Will you believe in Christ and trust that what he has done is enough to rescue you from your sin? Now, church, this question of how a sinner separated from God could become a recipient of the blessing of God leads Paul into the rest of this long sentence. He has said that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then in verses 4 through 14, he dives into the how in detail. Simply put, how in Christ. Now, what in the world does that look like? What are some of the details of of, of how we come to be in Christ and what it means to be in Christ and why it is in Christ? 
Verses 4 through 14, we find a most glorious explanation for how sinners come to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And remember, as Paul moves through this long sentence and answering the question of how, the goal is that we would be led to bless, that we would be led to praise God. And the first reason in this passage that Paul gives for our being blessed with salvation blessings is that we have been chosen by the Father. We have been chosen by the Father. We see this in verses four through six, which teaches us this church. And here's really our main idea statement. I'm told it's going to be a little different order today. Our main idea statement for the rest of our time today and then for next week. Okay, we see in verses four through six that we are to praise God for choosing us for salvation. We are to praise God for choosing us for salvation. Church, we stand on the brink of unmatched greatness and grandeur and power and grace. And it is here where we really begin to move in to the mind of our awesome God. As we examine verses four through six, I want to share with you several truths from these verses. But as I said, I'm only going to share the first of them today. Lord willing, we'll walk through the rest of them next week. And I pray that these truths will lead us to praise God for choosing us for salvation. Here's the first truth. And it's, again, the the only one we'll look at today is this church. The foundation of our salvation is the sovereign choice of God. The foundation for our salvation is the sovereign choice of God. If I were to ask you to start at the beginning of God's salvation plan and explain it, maybe you would start with Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins. And that's a that's a good place to start, but it's not the beginning. Many of us would probably start with Genesis chapter three, where God promised to send a man born of woman to destroy the serpent, which was a promise of salvation. We would go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and start there. And that's a great place to start when explaining the gospel. But that's not the beginning. It's definitely closer to the beginning than starting with the birth of Jesus. But even Genesis is not the beginning of God's salvation plan. It is the beginning of the Bible. This is the book of beginnings. It's what Genesis means, but it's not the beginning of God's salvation plan. Paul takes us to the very beginning of salvation, which is before the creation of the world. Before Genesis chapter 1. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How is it? That sinners come to inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Paul's first reason is this. Because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, here we have what is called the doctrine of election. That is God electing or choosing us for salvation. The foundation of our salvation is God's sovereign choice to save us. And as important as God promising to send Jesus and the coming of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus is when it comes to understanding salvation, the doctrine of election serves as the foundation for understanding how it is that rebels against God come into God's eternal blessings through Christ Jesus. Uh, Recently, I saw a video of a bride and groom cutting their cake. They were cutting their cake. I haven't been to a wedding yet um, where there was a really big mishap. I have been to one where there was a small mishap that was my part. I, I dropped the ring and I was the one doing the wedding ceremony. Um, but I haven't been to one where there was a big mishap. But it's amazing how many videos are out there of some pretty 
pretty bad stuff happening at weddings. Well, this particular one wasn't the worst one I've seen, but but I did feel bad for the couple. Uh, beautiful wedding cake. You know what a wedding cake, I mean, kind of traditional wedding cake, probably about three feet tall, four cakes stacked on top of each other. Absolutely beautiful. You think cakes are beautiful, and um, it definitely qualifies a beautiful cake. And and here are the bride and groom. They're they're they got their hands together, you know. They're holding that knife, kind of weird, you know. You hold hold a knife together at your wedding. Just think about that, anyways. And and, and they're they're holding their knife together, and they're they're cutting the cake, and and they kind of make the first cut, and then they make the second cut, and as they make the the second cut. One of the table legs collapses and the whole table hits the ground and that cake just dumps right on the floor. I did. I felt, I felt bad for him. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, couldn't have been a, a, an enjoyable moment for them. That cake was wonderful to look at and probably tasted really good. However, it was sitting on a faulty foundation and the result was that no one at the wedding was able to enjoy that wonderful cake. Church, if we want to really understand and then really enjoy the blessing of salvation and all that Christ has done for us, then we need to make sure we start with a firm foundation for our understanding of salvation. And that foundation, according to God's word, is the sovereign choice of God, or as we've said, this doctrine of election. Verse 4 says God chose us. Verse 5 says God predestined us. These two words, along with one other Greek word, which is very similar to the word here that's translated chosen, um, that's often translated elect or election. These three Greek words, again, two of which we see here in this passage, are used throughout the New Testament and are the words and verses around which we come to see and adhere to this doctrine of election. I want to consider a few things about doctrine of election today, God's sovereign choice of salvation. First, let's consider the meaning of the doctrine of election. Election means that before he created the world, God chose some people for salvation. Verse four is not merely saying that God chose to provide salvation for people. It is saying that he chose us. That is a particular people for salvation. Now, right off the bat, you might say, well, I thought I had to choose Jesus, I thought I had to choose to place my faith in Jesus in order to be saved. Didn't you just call people to trust in Jesus a moment ago, Pastor? Didn't you just say if you need to trust in Jesus, then you need to do that today? Yeah, absolutely. And you're exactly right if you say that we have to choose to place our faith in Jesus in order to be saved. You must do that. No one is saved apart from Faith in Jesus. But what this verse and many other verses in the Bible teach us is that those who choose to receive salvation through faith in Jesus are those whom God first chose for salvation before the foundation of the world. In other words, if you're here today and you have believed in Jesus for salvation, know that the reason that you, a sinner who once were dead in your sins, made the right choice to believe in Jesus is because God first made a gracious choice to save you from your sin. And he made that choice, the text very clearly tells us, before the foundation of the world. Next, I want us to consider the necessity of the doctrine of election. I'll just make two points here. Much that could be said, but I'll just make two points. First, if God had not chosen us for salvation, then we never would choose to be saved through faith in Jesus. This is why this is important. 
It's why it serves as the foundation for our understanding of salvation. If God had not chosen us for salvation, then we never would choose to be saved through faith in Jesus. The doctrine of sin teaches us that we are dead in our sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We are dead in our sin. Uh, Later in, in Ephesians, Paul says that we once were darkened in our understanding. Therefore, if we are to be saved, then God must intervene out of his own will and give us the gift of faith. Uh, A dead person can do nothing. If we're dead in our sins, we cannot resurrect ourselves to life in Christ. If we're darkened in our understanding, then something has to turn the light on in our minds so that we know that we need to trust in Jesus so that we will choose to trust in Christ. And that is the sovereign will of God. I would encourage you to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 at least this week and consider the doctrine of sin and how grave our situation is apart from God's work of salvation. Second, if God, and we're thinking about the necessity of the doctrine of election, second, if God had not chosen to save us, we never could have confidence that our salvation would be completed. In fact, the way Paul begins this passage very much um, is connected to the way he ends the passage. When we get to the last few verses of this passage, we're going to talk about the assurance that we have of salvation, that we can know that we're saved and that that salvation is never going anywhere. We're not going to lose it. Well, the reason that we're able to have assurance of salvation is because our salvation is based not on our choice, but God's choice. Ultimately, if salvation was based simply on our choice of God, then a faltering faith on our part would mean a faltering salvation, a faltering assurance. But because our salvation is founded primarily, ultimately upon God's choice of us, then it is ultimately completely dependent upon him. And praise God, he is a foundation that cannot and never will be shaken. And so just the doctrine of sin, which is clearly taught in Scripture, and the doctrine of the security of the believer, which is clearly taught in Scripture, really hinges on the doctrine of election. Next, um, as we think about the doctrine of election, I want you to consider just for a moment some objections to the doctrine of election. Sometimes in our finite minds, we, um, we push back upon the truths of God. It's a part of our, our, our nature. Um, and born into this kind of questioning of God and, and sometimes not really trusting God and taking him at his word. Sometimes it's just because objections just come because not because we're trying to push back against God's words, just because we're trying to understand something that's in the mind of God in the, in the depths of the mind of God. And it's just hard to understand. Uh, let me give just just a, a few um, objection. Number one, someone might say, but that's going to lead to diminishing the necessity of faith, as we kind of talked about. If God chooses us, then is it really that important for us to choose him? Again, God's word is so clear. No one comes to salvation except through faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus is a conscious choice that we make. The doctrine of election simply and profoundly reveals how it is that a sinner could come to make this conscious choice to have faith in Jesus. And that is because God first chose the sinner. Friend, election does not negate the necessity for us to choose God, specifically to choose Christ. But instead, it reveals how it is that we as people dead in our sins could ever come to make the right choice to believe in Jesus for salvation. And so the doctrine of election in no way diminishes the necessity of faith. Objection number two, some might say, but that then is going to lead this this doctrine of election is going to lead to laziness and evangelism. I mean, if, if God by evangelism, evangelism, I mean, sharing the gospel with others so that they can be saved. 
I mean, if God had already has already chosen certain people for salvation, then what's the point of sharing the gospel with people? Well, friend, we have to go back to uh, to God's word. Paul said to the Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God, again, never saves anyone apart from faith. And to take that a step further, no one can have faith in one in whom they have never heard. We must have faith in Jesus in order to be saved, which means we must have heard the truth of Jesus in order to have faith in Jesus. And so we must share the gospel with people. That is the means by which us sharing and communicating the good news of Jesus with others is the means by which God calls people to the salvation for which he has already chosen them. Election does not negate the need for evangelism, but it instead propels us into evangelism with greater humility and greater confidence. I say greater humility because we know that God is the one ultimately who does the work of salvation. And so if we share the gospel with someone and that person believes in Jesus, we know that God is the one who is responsible. And so God gets all the glory, not us. So it creates humility in us as we practice the discipline of evangelism. And then it produces greater confidence in our evangelism. Why? Well, because we know that God has already chosen people for salvation. And thus we know that the seed of the gospel will eventually fall upon the ears of people whom God will awaken to salvation. And so our efforts are not in vain. They are not futile as we share the gospel with other people. Objection number three, someone might say, but but that will lead to laziness in pursuing holiness. I mean, if God has already chosen us for salvation, then there's not not much incentive to live holy lives. I'll say more about this next week. But friend, this is a misunderstanding of salvation. Salvation changes us from the inside out. God choosing us for salvation means he is going to save us from sin and give us a new heart that desires to live holy lives for the glory of God. Election in no way negates the pursuit on our part of holy living, but it instead results in our transformation so that we can and will pursue holiness. And then one final objection, objection number four, someone might say. That doesn't seem fair. How could God choose some for salvation, but not others? And that objection leads to the final thing that I want to consider today. I want us to consider, as we close, the mystery of the doctrine of election. Church, this is why I opened today saying that in a far greater way than even gazing into the galaxies, I feel overwhelmed by this passage. It's because we are standing on the brink of the mind of God. And we are trying to understand the inner workings of the mind of God. And just to be blunt, there is only so much that we as finite humans can understand when it comes to the mind of God. We can only know what God has revealed to us in his word and allows us to understand through his spirit. There are some things we just don't know. But what we do know is that God is righteous and holy in all of his ways. And if we are tempted to think that somehow God is unjust in the way he has undertaken his plan of salvation, then we must quickly remember our place. We are not God. 
God is God and we are not. God is the judge, not us. We don't get to evaluate his actions and determine whether or not they are just. Paul addressed this objection to the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9. And he basically said this. God can do whatever he wants. Paul presents the objection of accusing God of injustice in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, and then continues that question in verse 19. And then he gives this response to anyone who would say, well, is God then unjust? And this is what the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means this is God's response to that question, is this. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Church, the Bible doesn't answer every question we might have for the secret things belong to God. Even the Apostle Paul didn't know everything. But instead of getting frustrated with God, Paul worshipped God for his greatness. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, after unpacking as best he could the doctrine of election, he ended this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as finite human beings, we must be at peace with not knowing everything we might like to know. And so instead of focusing on what we don't know, we should focus our energy on making sure we believe in and give thanks for and live according to all that God has made known to us while letting the unknown lead us into deeper worship of the God who knows all and who controls it all. And so the foundation for our salvation is the sovereign choice of God. And this should lead us to praise God, to praise Him for choosing us for salvation. The Lord willing, we will pick back up here next week. Two points of application. First, if you've never believed in Jesus, then you must do so if you are going to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if you need to talk to someone about trusting in Jesus for salvation, I would love to do that as soon as the service is over. And second point of application, if you have believed in Jesus for salvation, then I would encourage you to spend some time today, spend some time this week, church, meditating on the truth that God chose you for salvation. Ask God to help you understand what He has revealed to us concerning His sovereign choice and ask Him to humble you before His greatness and His grace. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, we are, we are not worthy to stand on the edge of such greatness and even have you allow us to know anything of God, you have graciously given us your word. You have graciously revealed to us what you want us to know and what we can know. 
about your plan of salvation. And Lord, it is overwhelming. God, it's, it's, it's not something that we ever would come up with on our own. It's not something that we could ever invent on our own. And Lord, it's even hard for us to understand. And, and the truth is, God, we can never understand even what you want us to understand on our own, Lord, because we are darkened in our understanding when we come into this world. Lord, we are by nature objects of your wrath. Lord, we are dead in our sin. But praise you, God, that in eternity past, that we don't know all the details or understand exactly how, Lord, we praise you. But according to the pleasure of your goodwill, you chose us for salvation. God, may it drive us to worship you with our lives. May it drive us to live for you. May it drive us to share this good news that we can come into possession of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we would share that good news with others. God, most of all, help it to make us stand in awe of You and Your greatness. God, we are not worthy. So we thank You for Your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.